We have a section in front of us here today that deals with fervent love. The title of the message is A Fervent Love for the Brethren because that's the thrust of the passage. And I want to begin with verse 20. Verse 20 and 21 of 1 Peter chapter 1 are really summary verses of wrapping up what he has said to that point, speaking of Jesus and salvation. He says, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Thus we see... Jesus Christ as our sufficiency for everything in the Christian life, and that is a setup for the next verse. Verse 22, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently with a pure heart, having been born again, not of corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Because all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man as the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls away, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Now this is the word by which the gospel was preached to you. This passage is all about the love of God and basically the resources that we have to love in the way that we're being called to love here. I see here the appeal for fervent love, which is obvious. The ability for fervent love, which is very encouraging in the new birth. And the anticipation of fervent love, which at the end there is all the discussion about this forever, the word of the Lord abiding forever. We are appealed to to love, we have the ability to love, and we have the anticipation of forever loving in heaven, so we might as well start now. It's that idea. Let's talk about this appeal for fervent love. This, this deeply ministers to me. I've heard so many messages on love in the Christian life. You know, when I, whenever I get to a passage on, and I see love there, I am immediately panic-stricken as a teacher. Because I figure, well, as soon as the people see it, they're going to tune out. They're going to think agape, I know. It's not uh, an emotion. It's an act of the will. It involves sacrifice. La, 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 la. I know, I know, I know, I know. And we have a lock-on, lock-out syndrome. Like how many of you live here near where the jets fly over but don't hear them anymore? So that's what I'm talking about. They come by but we don't hear them. Lock on, lock out. You see it, then you don't. You hear it, then you don't. I think we have trivialized Christian love as we have trivialized so many other things in the Christian life. But often especially love, we hear it, we hear it, we hear it, and then we no longer respond if we hear even more. I'm always intimidated when I come to a passage like this. Because of that, but I am deeply moved by this for a lot of reasons. One, I've just come back from a mission trip and seen Christians that have nothing in terms of spiritual resources. I've also watched a video this week of what you guys saw live Thursday night, and that was of Rose's message and her little video from Thailand. I'm telling you, if I wasn't all plowed up in my heart when I came back that day before, from uh, England, by the time I finished watching Rose's message, I was completely undone. Completely undone. Then I came back to this passage with a new, freshly exercised heart. I thank God for what is here. We are told here to love one another. Now, this subject is very prominent. In verse 22, we're told to love, love the brethren. 
obviously a very prominent thing in the New Testament. I think it obviously comes from, you know, Jesus in John 13, 34, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And by this all will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Obviously, the impact to the world of seeing a loving community is tremendous because... As we know from the problem with gangs, people want to belong, they want acceptance, they want recognition, even if they have to kill to get it. People are looking for love today. Thus, when we love one another among us, it's a tremendous message that there is a community that you can join to find the love that you desperately need. Jesus said a new commandment. What is new about it though? To love? No. That was commanded in the Old Testament. Is it the, uh, that it's a new standard? No. Because in the Old Testament they were told to love with all their heart, with all their mind, soul. There's nothing beyond that. The new thing is this. Love one another. It's the object of the love that's new. And what's new about it is this. We have a relationship in Christ It's different than anything human beings have known before. When the life of God comes to dwell in your soul and He changes you from the very center of your being and gives you new life and He saves you by grace which gives you the highest level of growing gratitude which I believe will grow throughout eternity as we really understand what we've gotten into here. As He does that There is a family-brother-sister relationship that we then have together that crosses all bloodlines, all country borders, all nationalities, all ethnic groups. And it brings us into a family with relationship one to another that is higher than any other kind of relationship. And it's all centered in Christ. So the new thing is to identify this new relationship and respond to it with a new kind of love that you are given as you come into the family. It's a new ability and a new family. It's that idea. So we are to love one another, Jesus says, and Peter calls us to love one another here. Now, the next thing he says is not only are we to love one another, but love one another sincerely. This is the idea in verse 22. He says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit, insincere love of the brethren love one another. What does that mean? What it means is this, unhypocritical love. In the Greek, the original language implies to be genuine and to be without pretense. So that as I come to this text, as I go away from it today and go out those doors to my life, I, I... begin to exercise an effort to love on the outside that's matched by a love on the inside. So that I'm not pretending to be loving on the outside because I'm a Christian and God told me to. And while all the while on the inside I have a grudge. You see? We have an usher team here. They work wonderfully together. They work so hard to get you into your seat even when you don't want to go there. Especially if it's a new section, you know, that messes you all up. You can't, that's too much variety for one day for some of you. But suppose the ushers are listening to this message and one has a grudge against the other and he's been kind of snotty with one of the other guys. And he goes away from here and all of a sudden he's all nice and loving on the outside with this guy now from now on. But on the inside he's still going, you know what, I still don't like the way you part your hair. I still don't like the way you color it. 
I still don't like the way you dress. I still don't like you. God bless you, brother. You know, that's hypocritical love. It's a sincere love that is on the inside and the outside. You don't pretend to love outwardly when you're not loving inwardly. Not only is it an unhypocritical love, it is a biblical love. When we're told to love sincerely, it is a biblical love. I make this point because anytime you find love in the Bible commanded, it is a love that's never divorced from the truth. Never. The moment you divorce biblical standards and parameters from love, it's no longer God's love. So that that becomes a very important thing to realize in loving sincerely that you make sure you're still within the boundaries of the Bible. I'm going to say more about that in a minute. Not only is it unhypocritical and biblical, but if it's to be sincere, it will be fulfilling. And I love this thought. I really like this. Because as we come to God and we're born again and ushered into this family of God with this relationship at the highest possible level that human beings can have, we come in to the most fulfilling type of love. In the sense that coming from the world, we're all beat up, broken down, messed up, perverted, guilt-ridden, and all the things the world does to you. And many people search for freedom from that, laying on the couch and listening to the psychiatrist talk, you know, that kind of thing. And um, big emphasis on that in our day. But I have seen that one of the most healing things in all of life is the love of God manifested to you through other human beings that love you sincerely, unhypocritically, without pretense. They really do love you. And suddenly you find yourself in a community where you are loved, you are accepted, and it changes your whole life. When I watched Rose's video um, from Thursday night, and she opened up by saying how touched she was by the love in this church, and when she, she, was, she wasn't given a script, and I was gone from the country, so it was real. I was blessed. She said, she said she felt that our church was truly like the church of Philadelphia, which is, of course, the word for brotherly love in this text. Brother love, literally. I was so blessed because as she shared of the love she had received here, I thought of all the people that have left here, wanting to live at a low level, loved enough by people who are willing to confront them, and willing to forgive them at the same time, but because they didn't really want to turn from their sin, they left mad, and they accuse us of all kinds of things. And I listened to her, and I thought, why is it this person feels so much love here, and some people don't? What is the difference? Certainly, if you're going to have a lot of friends, you have to show yourself to be friendly, and if you want to really receive true, sincere love, you have to be open to godly love. And then you'll find it to be a fulfilling love. This community of believers is so tremendous. It is so tremendous. Listen to this. Think about this. Did any of you ever hang out in bars before you were born again? Go ahead and admit it if it's a past fact. If you're still showing up there, don't raise your hand. <laughs> you know, I was just in London. They have pubs all over everywhere. A pub is a bar-slash-restaurant thing, you know? And they're all packed out. In the evening, you go by, man, they're in there, there's music, they're out on the sidewalks. It's just the thing. And I walked by wondering, why are they all in there? I mean, personally, I was never into hanging out in bars. But that doesn't mean I wasn't a low life or anything. But, you know, 
And I'm walking by these pubs going, why are they all in there? I thought, well, for fellowship. Then I read this thing that really spoke to me. The neighborhood bar is possibly the best counterfeit there is to, fel- to the fellowship Christ wants to give his church. The bar is an imitation, dispensing liquor instead of grace, escape rather than reality. But it is permissive, it is accepting, and it is an inclusive fellowship. It is unshockable. You can share anything and be anything. Everybody's too drunk to care. It is democratic. I threw that part in. It is democratic. The writer goes on to say, you can tell people secrets and they usually don't tell others or even want to. Too drunk to remember, usually I'll throw it in. And too busy worrying about telling you their secrets to remember yours. Back to the writer's thoughts. The bar flourishes not because most people are alcoholics, but because God has put in the human heart the desire to know and to be known and to love and to be loved. And so many people seek a counterfeit at the price of a few beers. I think that's pretty solid insight. Why are bars packed out? Why do they flourish? There is in the human heart the desire to know and be known, to love and be loved. And there is a great counterfeit out there in the pubs and in the bars. But you know the great thing about the Christian life is that need to be known, that need to know and be known and love and be loved is found and fulfilled in the community of God's people. Turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 2 and we'll see a great contrast to the type of fellowship that goes on in bars and pubs and all of that. And it's the real thing and it's truly fulfilling. Acts chapter 2 verse 42. says, and they continued steadfastly, watch this, in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship. You see, the Bible is never divorced from the love. It always goes together. In the breaking of bread and in prayers. Now, certainly involved in that was the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist, whatever you want to refer to it as. We use all those names, but... In reality, breaking of bread in the Mideast to this very day means a lot more than it does to us. It's the idea of you break the bread, you don't cut it. And you break it and give it to one another, you're becoming one with each other. It's loaded with symbolical meaning. So they're breaking bread, they're fellowshipping, they're, they're one with one another in prayers and seeking the Lord and fellowship. And great fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. It says they see God work in their midst. And then it says all who believed were together and had all things in common. They did not live communally as some have thought in the past, including myself. I lived in Christian communes for many years. And having all things in common, I was one for many years who lived that way. Handed in my paycheck every single week, simply signed the back, never got a penny for the job I worked at. Threw my clothes in with everybody else's and had to go through a pile of a hundred people's clothes to find mine and often ended up with your sock and my shirt and some other guy's whatever, jacket and all this, this kind of thing. And if you needed more clothes, you would go to what we called communal, which was a big closet of junk that nobody wanted. And uh, I lived like that. I, I planted trees in the mountains of uh, Oregon And I'd work 13, 14 hours a day, get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, leave at 3.30, drive two hours out to the site, work all day long, two hours back, all of that. And often, 
especially in 1971, I would come home to a bowl of onion soup. The onion soup was in a cottage cheese container. container. This is dinner. And you know what the onion soup was all about? A token slice, not even a full ring, of onion <laughs> and a little broth colored. I remember staring at my half onion in my clear broth in my cottage cheese container and thinking, I never liked cottage cheese. I don't like onions. I don't like the look of this thing. And I can't believe I'm living like this. And the bread came out of the back of dumpsters. And the butter and the rice and beans came from the government. I lived like that for about eight years. And um, it was all based on this text. It was nothing to do with that. They had everything in common in this sense. They loved each other enough to be sensitive enough to each other's needs to sell extra land and extra houses and take the money to meet the known needs in their midst. That's what this is all about. This is all about a love that is truly sincere. And it says in verse 45, they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. So sensitive to each other's needs. And continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, loving each other, having relationships, and they ate their food, notice, with gladness and simplicity of heart. Let me ask you a question. How many people in America today do you think have their food with gladness and simplicity of heart? Simplicity of heart is a vanishing element in our society. It's become so complex that little kids murder other little kids. Teenagers murder other teenagers. Teenagers murder their parents and the court can't figure out if they're guilty. Is that... It's bizarre. To live a life of gladness and simplicity to me is the way God intended man to live. And the way that you get there is he brings you into his family and you are loved and you love and you know and you are known and it is so fulfilling, so fulfilling. This is the way to live. Love one another, do it sincerely. And then back in First Peter one twenty-two, he says to do it fervently, fervently. And this is where the challenge comes. He says in verse 22, 1 Peter 1, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren, love one another fervently. This word literally means intensely or even more literally to be stretched to the farthest point. You want to remember something from today's message? It's this, to be stretched to the farthest point. How does God want me to love he wants me to be stretched to the farthest point of my ability to love. And that is going to obviously involve sacrifice, isn't it? Think about it. I will have to give up something in my life for the sake of helping someone else to be stretched to the farthest point. How do you do that? I think it begins by simply seeking God to be fit to do it. I mean, it isn't natural to the human heart, but it is something that is a natural desire to the new heart. And we're going to look at that in a minute. But the idea is it begins by seeking God to be fit to do what you can to help others. I think the greatest example is Jesus Christ the night before his death. And Luke records in chapter 22 and verse 44 that 
He is on his face in the garden, he's laying in the dirt, and he is in great agony. And the agony is in his spirit. Because he knows what's coming tomorrow, the greatest sacrifice of his life. Literally his life. And it says, being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Now, if you back up and look at that scene and simplify it, without robbing it of its richness, what you see is Jesus on his face in prayer, praying in great agony in the hardest moment of his life, to fit himself for the greatest sacrifice of his life, which will bring the greatest blessing to those that receive the benefit of that sacrifice. And we are told in Hebrews that we are to look unto Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him went to the cross. I go to God, I pray to be fit to make the necessary sacrifices, to give the love that I need to give in the way that I need to give it, that's how I begin to live loving stretched out to the limit. And Jesus is my ultimate example. And the idea is that you then begin praying, God, open my eyes to the needs around me. That's why I prayed in the beginning. You know, you can get so caught in your own little tube of your own life that you're not aware of needs around you. That's why, you know, when I come back from these missions trips, I find myself unable to fully express the need that I have beheld. And it's the kind of thing God is going to have to open your eyes. You don't have to go out to the other part of the world. You can go right out your doors into the world around us here. The need is so tremendous. But in the text here, the idea is loving each other among ourselves so that we become healthy and a great witness so we can reach the world. It is internal ministry, really, in the body of Christ and the family of God. It begins by seeking God to be fit to do what you can to help others. Then I think it goes from there to some things that are very clear in the Bible. How do I love in this fervent way? Well, one way is by seeking to be merciful to the weaknesses of others in our midst, in the family, whether it's in your home, whether it's in the church, whether it's in the ministry you do. Peter says it. He puts it in these exact terms. Could you turn to 1 Peter 4, 8? Just go to the right. 1 Peter 4, 8. Seeking to be merciful to the weaknesses of others. Look at what he says. Above all things. Here comes a new main priority in your life. Above all things. Have, here it is, fervent love, which is what we're talking about, for one another. Why? For love will cover the multitude of sins. One of the greatest ways that God will call you to love out to the very limit of your own today capability of loving, hopefully in the future it will be greater, but now you can only love as much as you can. One of the ways He'll call you to do that is to love fervently in the face of weakness and sin that has come toward your life. So that fervent love overcomes a multitude of sin. Now think of this. Think first of all of how destructive a fervent love given to someone in sin aside from any biblical standard. Think of how destructive that would be. Think of it given on a regular basis. Fervent, merciful love to the weakness and sin of another totally void of biblical standard. Do you understand how destructive that would be? 
Because what it would do is cement people into this idea. God loves me and that's all that matters. His people love me and that's all that matters. And we're all going to mess up. So, hey. And as, as they live like that, with that, receiving love like that, they're going to slip lower and lower and lower, right? In their standard. They're going to lower the standard down until they live more and more carnally and say, well, hey, it's all only about love anyhow. So everything's all right. So damaging. Now, the reverse. Think of how powerful. A fervent love that will love one who has slipped in weakness and sinned, maybe even against you. But you fervently love them and you're merciful to them in their weakness and their sin. So that there's room to fail in the relationship. But that love is never divorced from the standards, the demands, and the parameters of the Bible. Think of how powerful that love is. Now you've got a love being exercised in a relationship there where there's all the room in the world to fail, but a passionate, fervent love that is not only forgiving, but pushing you to the highest level you can attain at the same time. And now you've got real room for growth and God to be glorified and people to move ahead in the Christian life. Love one another fervently, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Seek to be merciful to the weaknesses of others with the Bible in mind, and you'll have a powerful dynamic in your life. Another way to live this love out to the limit is by sacrificing time to pray for others. Think about that. Sacrificing time to pray for others in real need. I think that what we often do is, someone says, will you pray for me, there's this great need. Or I come back from England, I say, pray for the brethren in England. Great need. Or Rose says, pray for the work in Thailand, the orphanages, especially the new one, and the jungles, the villages we go to. Great need. Pray for the new church that was started when they were there for three days in the video she showed. Great need. And we go, you got it, sister. If there's anything I am, it's a prayer warrior. And you go away. Now, Lord, I told Rose I would pray. And here's what you do. You get out an arrow prayer. You know what an arrow prayer is? Pull it out of your quiver. Oh God, help Rose. Now Lord, concerning my problems, you know, I've just been in such agony, Father. And, and on you go. You just kind of, the list. Far too often we sacrifice no time to pray for the great needs of others. Remember when they arrested Peter and put him in prison? Now they had already arrested James and they cut his head off. They put Peter in prison and he was scheduled for the same thing. He was going to die the next day. And the Bible says that the brethren went to constant prayer. It says in Acts 12, 5, Peter was kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. That, re that means this. It means some of the brethren missed their jogging that day. It means some of the brethren missed... Uh, going and hanging out at Starbucks that day. That's the ultimate sacrifice. And then it means some of the brethren didn't play tennis that day. It means some of the brethren didn't go for a long cruise by the lake in their RV. Some of them didn't get to water ski. Some of them didn't get to surf that day. Why? Because there was a great need and it needed constant prayer. You see... To give up time to pray for the real needs of others is a great way to love fervently all the way out to the end of your ability. And one other thought I would give you is this. We can love this way by going beyond our comfort zone to help and encourage. 
going beyond our comfort zone to help and encourage. When was the last time you did that? Say, well, I brought my wife a card, signed it, I love you, baby. Oh, wow, man, you really burst out, didn't you? Someone else says she loves daisies, and I picked her some in the backyard and had my son take them into her. Well, why didn't you? Well, I was busy. I was having a Coke and looking at the scenery. You know, when was we have so trivialized love. When was the last time you sacrificed to help someone with a real need? As I was watching Rose, and if you guys weren't here Thursday, I mean, you missed it big time. Shame on your sin-sick, shriveled-up souls. As I, I'm sort of kidding. But as, as I was watching her video, which really left me unable to speak, I went and hid out in my house after I watched it, prayed, but... I thought, look at this. This woman, you know, she's driving around over here in this Chrysler. Big, cool, new Chrysler that Nick here in our congregation got her for the time she's here. She's just loving it. But she's going to give it all up. And she's going back to Thailand. And she will be again in the jungle. And she will be again sleeping on a bamboo mat. And she will be again faced with rats running around by her. And again, you know, cockroaches crawling all over her. And all the things... God's calling you, did you know that? And all the things... Sacrifice to help another. You know, um, I told you before, it was 15 years ago when I saw Rose, or maybe a little less, when I saw Rose in a, a slideshow standing in the jungle of Thailand. Totally changed my life. One moment on one slide. And uh, Friday, when I watched the video of her in Thailand and listen to her talk and I saw Newt stand here this girl that she raised from 5 years old to 20 and this girl zealous for God and there's about 100 other kids like this that Rose who is not married has personally raised they are all her children and they all love Christ as I watched that I was so moved again but I know nothing of this kind of love that will sacrifice to help another and so it is that I'm willing to ride in coach and an airplane people, the Europeans don't use deodorant and you know the wafting through the plane and cranky flight attendants when I see Rose in Thailand I'm willing to do it I'm willing to do it even though I'm a little crazy in the pulpit when I get back but this helps <laughs> what a way to live huh fervent love it's the only way for us to live. The appeal for fervent love leads to the ability for fervent love. We can do it. Why? Because 1 Peter 1.22, Since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit. Because there came a moment in time when you came to Christ and He purified you. In other words, in the new birth, suddenly within, there was something new. Something old dropped out, that's the old you, a new you came, a new I, there was a deep, genuine, radical change that, that altered your desires and gave birth to new holy longings that come from the center of your soul. So that now you're born again, you love God suddenly. And now you're born again and you suddenly have a capability to love you never had before. That's why He can ask us to love this way. We have the ability. We were born again by obeying the truth, Peter tells us here. And you obey the truth, you respond to the gospel, you turn from your sin to follow Christ, and in that obedience to the word of God comes a new life. 
That is ever and always the secret and the means to love in the Christian life and power, obeying the truth. Your Christian life begins that way and the power continues to flow that way. It is the obedience to the truth through the work of the Spirit within us. As Peter talks about here, through the Spirit, having been born again of incorruptible seed, here in verse 23, it's that work of the Spirit with the Word that brings us to the point of a purified life, having been initially purified, not perfect, but all the inward deepest desires changing. It's that ability now, with the sustenance and the nurturing of the Word and the work of the Spirit within us, that makes it possible for us to love like this. It makes it a joy. It makes it a thrill. You see, this is the way to live. This is the way to live. And the greater the purity, the greater the love. And you know that's true. Because the Bible says in the last days, because the love of, because iniquity will abound, the love of many will what? Wax cold. Where there is no love, it's because sin has killed it. By the liberation that comes from Christ, the new life within, the liberation from sin, the ability to obey the word and cultivate in an ongoing way purified life, the love can increase. And so we must obey the word and respond to the spirit. And then we have this wonderful ability. And just to touch on this as we close the anticipation of fervent love, we've seen the appeal and the ability. But in verses 24 and 25, the whole thought here is he brings up this whole thing of the, flat, the, the grass and all this. In verse 24, he says, All flesh is as grass and all the glory of men is the flower of grass. The grass withers and its flower falls away. He's saying the best thing man has, man at his best success, on his own from God, apart from God, it's all going to go away. Man's ideas of success are always changing. Man's greatest moments will ultimately be gone. And man's best will be replaced forever by God's best. And God's best begins now for us, who are God's children in this life. And the essence of God's best, when he says the word of the Lord, verse 25, endures forever, which is really what we're talking about, God's word on love and all of this, it will abide forever. This is the word by which the gospel is preached to you. The Christian life, the best of God, is found in the love of God. At the cross, in your heart, when you obey the gospel and come to Jesus, and his love comes in as life, and then through your life, as you love sincerely, unhypocritically, and fervently, out to the far edge of your ability today, now, that ability will increase as you grow, as you respond to the word. This is the best of God. This will go on forever. The best of man, which is empty, flowers and fades, and it will be gone. But we will live forever, and we will love forever. And that's why the best way to live now the truest measure of success in your life now is what am I doing to love sincerely and fervently the people in the family, in the place, at the time, in the way where God has brought me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these people that love you and thank you for the wonderful richness of your word to nurture our souls. Thank you for the ability now to love in this way and to grow in this way and Lord we thank you for all that we've seen you do in our midst and we do pray we could continue
to grow in our love and our understanding of the word and that we truly could have that continuing in the apostles' doctrine and the blessed fellowship together that brings a simplicity and a gladness to our lives and ultimately a fullness. Open our eyes, Lord, to the needs around us and show us how each one of us uniquely can make our current contribution to those needs appointed by you to fulfill. And we will give you all the glory. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.